Hello, and welcome to The Reconstruction, a show about moving capital toward justice. I'm Monique Aiken, Managing Director for TIP, the Investment Integration Project, and Contributing Editor at Impact Alpha. In this series of conversations, I'll be exploring the opportunity for systemic change in this current moment, lifting up the leaders, problem solvers, and bright minds, both in the U.S. and around the world, who can guide us to the next normal that we need. Deanna Hoskins joins us today. Deanna is the president of Just Leadership USA, an organization dedicated to cutting the correctional population in half. Thanks for joining us on The Reconstruction, Deanna. Thank you for having me. So let's get right into it. The Just Leadership website states that oppressive systems are a continuation of slavery and know that by educating, elevating, and empowering voices of people directly impacted by the criminal legal system to dismantle systemic oppressive issues for their communities to thrive, together we can build an equitable and just America. What does that look like in terms of your practical day-to-day work, and who are your primary stakeholders? So as Just Leadership being a national organization that was founded by and operated by formerly incarcerated individuals, individuals directly impacted by the system, we know that our voices have been marginalized. Our voices have been oppressed. So at Just Leadership, our role, what we say our role in the movement is, is to educate those voices. So through our day-to-day work, that comes in the forms of our training, our programs. We have a year-long program called Leading with Conviction, where we work with individuals who are already leaders in their community and actually provide some extra skills around storytelling, how to communicate your story for narrative change, and actually how to even identify the barriers that are a priority in your community and helping them identify what policy level it is on. How do you organize? How do you, how do you advocate? What are the various levels? One of the things that we've realized at Just Leadership was that as directly impacted people, we really didn't realize we had a voice. I think what we saw over the summer is when you see rallies or organizing of people, that is just a result of people whose voices haven't been heard. So really at Just Leadership, we're saying, how do we actually train communities across this country to embody that power and to rise and actually, as we call it, walk into their greatness of that power? Because we do have a power as people. We just haven't utilized that voice and momentum. So that's what Just Leadership wants to provide to this movement, the training catalyst that is needed so that we can all rise together to effectively disrupt the oppressive systems. And just to follow up on that, what is the role of policy and potentially policies like qualified immunity in all of this? So there are various things, right? Policy is one element of it. But there are other systemic oppressions that take place. One of the things I think, you know, when you talk about qualified immunity, we're talking from a police stance. um, And that's how the world has been looking at it, of police violating people's human and civil rights and then utilizing this clause, right? This, This policy that has allowed it not to hold people accountable. So what we realize is the police aren't the problem. It's the policies that have been instituted that allows the continuation of this oppression, the marginalization. Um, You know, one of the things that I share with people, a lot of times I feel you have to know where we've been to know why we're sitting in the current situation we're sitting in. And when you look at the abolishment of slavery and the creation of police departments, the first people who were police officers that was considered a low-class job were slave catchers. 
So when you look at the culture in certain police departments, how police chase down and gun down and shoot people fleeing them in the back, it, it's, it has that flavor of slavery, right? So there's this continuation um, and what the system has put in place, we abolished slavery and said it's illegal to exploit people's labor, it's illegal, but we never said it was, we never made it illegal to kill us. And that's why we put qualified immunity in the clause of a policy. And I say that, Monique, because I'm struggling with the fact of all the Black men where DNA and Evidence is starting to clear them, and they've taken 15, 20, 25 years of their lives incarcerated, but we're not holding prosecutors accountable. Prosecutors are not being disbarred when they when it was prosecutorial misconduct, right? We're not prosecuting the police department, police officers who did that false evidence. So there's this historical legacy and connection of dehumanizing a certain segment of population that we're not talking about. We keep putting policies to fix it, right? We could put keep putting band-aids on bullet holes. And I'm like, can we uproot this tree? This is racism. And it's a continual, continual legacy. And if we don't become bold in this moment, um, because we're crying for the same things Martin Luther King and then we're crying for all these years later. What, and if we really got something, we wouldn't be having this issue right now. So what I want to make sure doesn't happen is that we get these imaginary policies as freeing and liberating black and brown communities. And then 20 years later from now, my granddaughter, who's nine months old, is 20 years old in college and being in the streets with the same signs of Black Lives Matter as we are today. Because we didn't keep our foot on the pressure to say, let's uproot this. Let's human. We are humans. We are still considered a third of a human in the Constitution. Nobody's having that conversation. And the policies keep to continue to perpetrate that dehumanization of us. And so when you talk about policies, policies are good, but policies also are protecting the status quo of white supremacy. I'm blown away because uh, it resonates so deeply, um, everything that you said. And when we think about the, you know, our definitions of risk and worthiness and who gets to be seen as fully human and, our, and the dehumanization that you just spoke about, how, how did race and poverty play into all of the backstory of how we got here? You know, just look at where we are today. Um, I'm looking at what's taking place right now, right? We elect people, whether it's RD, independent, we elect people to uphold a constitution and our rights. And what we're seeing is that there, there are certain people who are afraid that there's going to be real equity somewhere and that they should not be on the same level with us. So what are you are seeing is the continuation of oppression. What you're seeing is, and, and I'll use an example, there is no way um, Black and marginalized communities showed up in Georgia. And immediately you implemented Jim Crow laws. I mean, why are we making a law to say you cannot hand out food and water to people sitting in the voting line? Why? 
because we know the lines are going to be 12 to 15 hours long because we have removed the number of voting places, right? So we're continuing to marginalize. Why are we saying that you need a certain kind of ID now? You, you need to bring a piece. When I say the oppression is there, the continued oppression, right? And even the representatives who represents those districts is why we have this redlining because those end up being people who aren't even from those communities to have a voice for those communities, right? Um, when, when you look at the fear, I even look at the COVID economic st- stimulus. Everybody's crying about $1,400 to stimulate a society that had sat still and had been shut out. And the jobs that couldn't work from home the pe- not having middle income, lack of income, the first jobs that shut down were the jobs that black and brown people mostly occupied, especially people with criminal backgrounds. So you're talking about sporting venues, hotel catering, all of the service industries that was more lenient to people with criminal backgrounds who are in that most oppressive state uh, of poverty. We, we criminalize poverty. Um, you know, just look at Bail. Bail is supposed to be a guarantee that you'll return to court. But bail should also be incompatible to your ability to pay. We don't see that in black and brown communities, right? We're held hostage. And the Constitution says we should be, we're innocent until proven guilty. In black communities, we are guilty until proven innocent. And it is demonstrated by bail reform and different things that we do. The one thing COVID did bring to light that we would have never had the opportunity, and I've been begging people to harp on this, is that when COVID hit, local jails that where people have not been convicted sitting pretrial did better than the prison system of releasing people. And what we were able to see was releasing people pretrial status did not increase crime. It did not jeopardize public safety. So now I'm questioning, why are we utilizing cash bail? If we've actually forced into a situation to actually have to do this without legislation, but now what we're seeing, we're seeing the jail populations going back up and places here where I am, the capacity is 1,600 a night. The sheriff had got it down to 800. It's back up to 1,200. And I'm sitting here saying, why? When it was proven to taxpayers, and that and that's kind of what just leadership. How do we take that narrative and share it with taxpayers of how their money's being wasted just to sit people in their local jail when we have a clear example what happened during COVID and that public safety was not at risk at all? I think that tells the tale. That is a specific story, and we would never have made that experiment. And COVID showed us all kinds of things, the way the system has been failing us or failed in many ways in different domains and industries. But I know, I know this is, the system is one level, but this is also personal. And I know it's deeply personal for you. So can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you went from being in the system yourself to not only working for systemic reform, but rubbing elbows with leaders in Capitol Hill and in the White House during the Obama years, and then being tapped for your current role to, to lead this incredible work. Thank you. So, you know, part of my story is I struggled with a drug addiction. Um, 
in the early 90s, all up during what was called as the crack era, um, addicted to crack cocaine. And around 98, I committed a crime, ended up incarcerated. Well, I ended up with community supervision originally. Nobody ever addressed the drug addiction that I, or the substance abuse disorder I was dealing with. Um, so I violated that community supervision and was incarcerated at a community-based correctional facility. One of the things that I realized is I was truly an addict because I was using even when I didn't want to use. No intentions of using, right? I always say good intentions paved the road way to hell, right? No intentions of using it would end up using. But some things happened during that time. During that time, my daughter, who's 22 now, um, my daughter was eight months old. And my cousin stepped in to care for my daughter, who was eight months, and my son, who was 20 months at the time. They were really close. She stepped in to care for them. And during that time of incarceration, during that time of really trying to focus on self and what was the behaviors, what was the contributing factors that using or putting a mood-altering substance in my body, was what was the pain it was covering up? When I was released, Monique, I think the most devastating thing happened. Uh, you know, the first year of a child's life is their bonding moment with their parents, right? So even my son, um, although they were close, they're they're roughly like 12 months apart. Although they were close, he still struggled with that bonding because I was in active addiction. Then I was removed from my daughter during that first year. And when I came home with my cousin, uh, and I knew this was not intentional on her part, it's just what happens naturally with children. I went to reach for my daughter and my cousin was holding her and she pulled back and called my cousin mom. It was, she was fearful of me. And to tell you the feeling of that as a mother, not blaming my cousin, because I knew what it showed me was that she had given my daughter everything she needed, that she was totally secure and comforted by her, right? But that was the natural progression of family separation and what happens, right? And a lot of that trauma. My son struggled with potty training at that time. And when I came home, I remember my cousin said, let's integrate them back slowly. Let's take him first and you and him build and then we integrate her, but still having, you know, visitations and stuff. And we did that. And it was amazing just being clean and sober with my son Within two weeks, he was fully poly trained, never had an accident. So it showed me that that family separation played a role with him. And then integrating my daughter back, and we've all been together um, as a family unit since then. But so I had been introduced to family um, separation and the trauma of that. Then, you know, part of my sentence was to get a job. Well, my life had changed because I had a felony conviction now. And I remember I had skills. I went to high, graduated high school and I was fortunate enough to go to a high school that had vocational training. So I had data entry skills. This is when data entry was being really. And I would get job interviews and all, people wanted to offer me jobs. And they would always say, but based on our policy. And I started asking for copies of that policy. And I started to find out there were not written policies. These were unwritten rules that people had started to marginalize, which is why you saw the ban the box initiative going out. Because people were strategically discarding knowledge, skills, and abilities based on criminal records. 
So once the band um, box went on, I just started, I, I stepped into this role of calling it out publicly. And I started understanding policy and how it played out marginalized in Black communities. And in that challenge, um, you know, I, I often try to look at my process of how did you get here? And one of the things was I started applying for the jobs people told me I couldn't have because of my felony conviction. And I st- I realized the skill set was my resume was my brochure to get me in a door. I just needed to get in a door. I could sell myself. And once I started selling my knowledge, skills, and abilities, people started overlooking the fact that I had a felony conviction because I they were looking for a certain type of employee to carry out a job. And I think the 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 test of time is when I was actually hired for the Indiana Department of Corrections as a case manager and within four months was promoted to a unit manager within seven months to the governor's office. And, and I think that broke for me that we are allowing society to hold us hostage on our past by not allowing us to say, if you sentence me to incarceration for rehabilitation and I do that, what are you afraid of? Um, so the policy knowledge started to move from there. People started paying attention um, to how, you know, not only me, just people that I was empowering that were uh, other directly impacted people and mentoring to say, let's move this needle. needle. And unfortunately, um, fortunately, getting the attention of the Obama administration and being the first directly impacted person to walk into federal government in a leadership role to manage the corrections and reentry budget out of there. Um, and ultimately being actually, you know, kind of flirted with for this position, which, you know, and I'm going to be honest with you, you, for a person who has a criminal record, I was not a political appointee. I was a career employee. So I really felt I had arrived. Like who doesn't try to get to the federal government at a high level but what I realized, it was bigger than that, a position for me. It was around my voice being heard and the voice of all those on the ground and that I would better serve the community from the outside than having my voice limited being within government. It's powerful. It resonates so deeply. I, as a mom of a two-year-old, I, uh, you know, my heart breaks for that time when you felt estranged in some ways just due to the distance that you shared. Um, but the winding road led you to you know such an important position to being someone who's been there and to be able to share that perspective and when i think about this work and and i so deeply admire you for you know your perseverance and how you made it through and i think when we spoke before you talked about the alphabet soup that needs to go after your name in order to get that foot in the door so you know as i think about that i celebrate all of that but that's my perspective who is the opposition to this work and, you know, when we think about the legacy and, and the, the barriers that we need to overcome, you mentioned the constitutional at the outset, um, the 13th Amendment still there. And what does it what does it do for how this work unfolds? You know, systems of oppression are resistant. They have lasted for decades. And what we see is continued pushback. Um, we see fear even in the possibility that things may change. So you you see these oppressive laws around democracy, voting rights. Um, you still you see us holding on to the Thirteenth Amendment. And the example that I like to give with that is 
you know, the 13th Amendment, um, which still legalizes slavery within a situation of involuntary servitude, right? It, it, it continues to dehumanize people. So in Angola, you still have people who work the Angola plantation that Angola sits on. You have corporations who make millions of dollars utilizing prison industry in the name of reentry training to actually build their products that are sold, sold to the general public, but people are making 10 cents an hour or a dollar a day. Um, so until we are seen as humans, that abolishment, that involuntary servitude, I don't think we're going to see policies that actually come out because if the constitution is the foundation of this country and what we stand on, we can't continue to address policies without addressing a foundation. And again, I use a lot of analogies and I asked someone the other day, if you purchase a house and the foundation is weak, do you just tear down the house and rebuild the house or do you tear down the house to uproot the foundation? So if the Constitution is the foundation, why are we not even bold enough to start looking at this? If the Constitution is the foundation, why are we bold enough to look at the 15th Amendment, which allocates and states that every man has a right to vote? But we're, And so I'm sitting here like, why are we struggling with voting right laws when we have a Constitution that is supposed to be the foundation, but we have elected officials who are afraid to touch it or talk about it. So here's, again, why just leadership is so important. Because everybody else is scattering. Um, everybody else scatters for wins around policies. This is our lives. We are proximate to the problem. And if our voices are not heard, we're going to continue to recycle this inequity, these injustices. And I always like to say, we just changed her clothes. We didn't change the actor. We just changed her clothes. Um, so until we put it in people's face, to the people who are most proximate, to the people who are most in pain with this, to say, stop playing with our lives. You are part of the problem, putting a Band-Aid over a bullet hole. The 13th Amendment, which does not see us as human. The 15th Amendment, which gives us our voting rights that we're not standing on. And we keep putting policies in place to add on. I'm like, if liberation is freedom, freedom doesn't come with more rules. Freedom comes with less rules. So we're going in the wrong way and we're so reactive to everything that happens to say, let's just make people feel good. No, let's disrupt this shit. <laughs> yes, yes, and yes again. Uh, you know. I, you paint a, a vivid picture with that, with that analogy. As you've mentioned, you're great at these analogies. That to get to the root cause, we need to dig deeper. And criminal justice is inextricably linked with the other justices: economic justice, climate justice, our COVID recovery. And as we think about, if we can't achieve these shared goals in this work, and we need to take an intersectional approach, as, as you have articulated in, in other ways in your writings and other things that I've read, what does the world look like? if you all are successful in these campaigns and the ways that you lead and, you know, paint a t picture of what, um, what happens if we can get it right. I think what you see is thriving, you know, black, black and Brown communities are surviving. We're in survival mode. We're just happy to have a place to live. 
happy to have a job that pays a decent wage. But when communities are thriving, communities are healthy. And when you have healthy communities, you have increased public safety. You have schools, you have children who feel safe. You have parents that allow their children to play outside. You have the resources that actually provide recreational activities in communities. Here's the thing. We're looking at the criminal justice system as the problem. The criminal justice system is just a symptom of the real problem. It's kind of the catch-all. So when we talk about the economic deprivation in certain communities, the lack of educational opportunities and school systems, again, analogy, Cincinnati, um, Cincinnati public school system. Stark difference of where the school is located and the economic viabilities in those communities, right? So we have communities called Madeira, Marimont, higher level incomes, higher property values. Schools got air conditioning, new bo loose books, everything, right? Elementary schools. I, my elementary school was in the hood. I, we was hot in those brick buildings, right? <laughs> but I did not go to the lower income schools. Like I said, no air conditioner. Teacher has to buy supplies out of their own pockets. Um, more police surveillance, more police officers in the schools than social workers. Um, so, and here, here's another one. A kid can commit suicide over the weekend in an influent community. Monday morning, grief counselors and everybody is at their school to demonstrate to those kids that that's not normal. In the <laughs> impoverished communities known as you know, low-income, impoverished, marginalized. A kid gets killed. Our kids walk past a mural with a bunch of teddy bears. They get a T-shirt, and it's business as usual. Don't cry. So what we have done as a society and the media, we have normalized violence in the most oppressed communities. And when that violence escalates, we don't go in to heal the community we go in to gentrify the community and give it to another cultural class and we'll just push you out into another segregated area, right? So you, you see that all the time. Um, you see the 10-year plans where communities come in and in the most marginalized communities and start gentrifying this, call it mixed housing unit, right? We're going to have some low income, we're going to do this, but then the continuation continues and now that same it's funny, that same community where I use drugs at, that was the projects, has been torn down, mixed housing built, but now a huge stadium has come, and now they're labeling it a destination neighborhood. We're talking about the projects. <laughs> We're talking about the projects that you did not heal. You just pushed everybody out, redesigned the housing. Five years later, oh, we need a stadium in the middle of the hood. And after the stadium is built and the ribbon is cut, oh, let's make this a destination neighborhood. Who's the destination for? It ain't for the people who were originally born there. We are pushed out, right? We're pushing out people I went to school with who families owned these beautiful architectural homes years ago, right? For 20, 30,000. I'm watching skeletons because they were demolished or boarded up during the crack epidemic, boarded up, um, seized from families, and with no with no piping, no drywall, are selling for $500,000 now. We're talking about the hood. 
So I always ask, so where did all the kids go? Where did all the people, where did all the elderly people go? Well, all you need to do is sell one property at that high value. Now the top property tax goes up and people like my mother and grandmother who retired gracefully from the local hospital as a custodian or as a nurse's aide can no longer afford the taxes on that income, right? So now they're forced to move or they're forced to leave or undersell their house to a developer. Um, and, and you just, you, you watch this and it's like, when do we finally get our fair share? We're 400 years behind in counting. So to even say that a $1,400 check or a monthly stipend of people, we're, we have a four, you have a 400 year head start on us. And what you're continuing to do, you're not trying to help us catch up. You keep putting policy policies in place that slowly continue to keep us marginalized and oppressed while giving the illusion that you're giving us something. You're not giving us anything because we built everything around here. Resonates. We need to be very thoughtful about the way we move forward because there are trillions of dollars moving around this United States and this planet uh, in this post-COVID recovery, we have an opportunity that we are calling sort of reconstruction economics to potentially inject a measure of justice into how we do this next phase. And as you continue to grow and learn, who do you look to for new ideas? People write books around certain topics that I start, like democracy. I'm really starting to understand more around democracy from Stacey Abrams. But I really turn to directly impacted people, right? My colleague Desmond Mead led the restoration of Amendment 4 in Florida, 1.4 million getting their voting rights. But Monique, for real, I focus on history because, I, fe- I again, I keep saying if we don't understand how it all transpired before, we're, we're apt to repeat the same mistakes. So when you even talked about keeping our eye on the prize, making sure we don't go back to that. Even in the midst of this recovery, you know, there's $5 billion that went out for infrastructure. And I started pushing back on the White House. uh, That's great. But if you don't change the policy within um, the Office of Personnel Management of how vendors of federal funds have to follow a fair hiring policy or fair hiring practices, if they utilize federal funds, those funds aren't going to touch people in our community. Our people in our community aren't going to get those jobs. It is, you know, typically you see huge construction jobs like infrastructure bridges and you'll drive past and be like, why are all these out of state license plates? Because people come from out of state with those skills to work on those jobs and live in hotels, go back home on the weekend. My father was a construction worker. We talk about this literally traveling to work because the money was so good and coming home on the weekend. But if you don't have those policies in place and those protectors, and you're saying this is for the communities who are most marginalized where these infrastructures are going to take place, they're not going to be held accountable because they don't have to hire those people, right? Because you don't have the policy in place. And guess what? It's an eight-year project. Year six and a half, we're going to be screaming. Nobody from our communities got employed. Nobody, Our tax base did not increase because that revenue was not in our communities. But the project's over. The money's gone. And there we are again sitting idle because we have not been empowered to understand the linchpins of policy and what looks good as $5 billion coming out of the White House to fix infrastructure in our communities. It looks good, 
But here's the catchphrase that is not covering to protect us to be part of that economic viability. Legalizing of marijuana. We're a lead on the MORE Act with Drug Policy Alliance. And all we're holding firm on is there is no way you can legalize marijuana and allow white men to get rich from what black men have been going to prison for for years. And then you block us because of our criminal record from even participating in that economic viability. There is no way. There is no way in hell that can happen in this day. Because that's the bottom line, right? Again, that's the, the remnants of slavery, right? On the backs of people, the pain and suffering, what you built or what you did, people come in to step on and get rich and then block us from participating. We created that skill set. <laughs> we created that knowledge. How dare we not get to participate in it legally? when we were forced to utilize that to supplement our income because of the oppressive natures of our survival communities. So from your perspective, given what you just shared, what is one characteristic our next normal must have in order to do this, right? I think our next normal has to be equitable. It has to be equal. It has to be a balance across all sectors, whether it's education, economic, criminal justice, even, let's be honest, people are going to commit crimes, people are going to be sentenced, but should the sentences be unjust or harsher for a certain segment of population? Um, Should our school systems lack certain resources or be under-resourced simply because they're in a certain community? Um, Should the jobs that are available, if you truly say, that my incarceration is me being held accountable for the mistake I made and that is truly around corrections and rehabilitation and I do that, why am I not restored? Why am I not restored to say, there's a record of that, but the slate is clean. You've paid your debt to society. My debt is never paid. Actually, while being in a cage is not comfortable at all, being away from your family is not comfortable, We've actually made prison easier than we've made community reintegration because now you gave me a place to sleep. I knew I was going to get a meal. I had access to basic hygiene areas. Even if I didn't have funding, you gave me what was called a care package once a month, right? You gave me two stamps a month to communicate with my family. But now I come back to the community. You tell me where I can live, same as slavery, where I can live, where I can work, what I can do. And even in some states, if I have a right to reintegrate with my children that I birth, right? Um, So there's this continuation of, so if it's a correction system to correct behavior, why is the punishment harder once I'm back in the community? So So I always argue with people of, are you trying to disrupt the correctional system? Or are you trying to disrupt the systemic oppression, which is a tangled web and we all have a piece in it? It's easy to continue band-aids when we silo it. If I talk about criminal justice, I have to talk about housing, a human basic need. I have to talk about employment, education, medical, right? So because when you it's easy to silo criminal justice and it's easy for people to say that's not my issue. They committed a crime. Do your time, right? But no, has someone looked at 
the survival mode I was in that led to the activities that landed me there. We know our criminal justice system has become the biggest mental health and substance abuse treatment provider in this country. Why? Because those resources aren't available. When I was addicted to crack, it was a criminal justice problem. But now that the face of addiction has changed and it's opiate, all of a sudden it's a public health issue. And people, and we've categorized it as public health. And we don't sanction through the criminal justice system for the utilization or abusing of that addiction. But we also didn't go back to correct none of the past behaviors of the black people who suffered with that same addiction problem that is now a public health issue. So again, you know, when we look at this, the system changes to adjust based on the face of it, right? So opiate changed the face of addiction. I think the insurrection on January 6th shows something too. When we were protesting the death of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter showed up in D.C., you saw National Guard in full armor standing across Capitol steps. Peaceful demonstration, tear gas, everything going. What you saw January 6th, that people were able to scale a national monument People were able to infiltrate the floor of the house and then were escorted out by police officers. And we write a bill that says police need de-escalating training. January 6th shows me they know how to de-escalate. They know how to deliver customer service, right? It depends on who they're de-escalating. All of what you said, everything. I, I, The equitable nature of how we move forward, we really need to interrogate the ways that we have made choices and the ways we've all been complicit. Every single one of us needs to unlearn and relearn how to do justice because we've never seen it before. We actually don't know. There are no templates how, how to do it. There are green shoots, folks, leaders like yourself and others who have been on our show who have been doing life with more justice, but that's not been an across the board thing. And so when we think about our imagination that we needed to, to that we, the imagination we need to live in this future we've never known. Um, the author, Adrienne Marie Brown, I always quote her, You know, she had this incredible analogy. We're living in the ancestral imagination of others who never expected me or you to be educated, to have the jobs that we've had, to be thriving. And so what do we need to do now to get that thriving that you mentioned? How do we liberate our imaginations to be able to do what's necessary to bring that new reality to be good ancestors today so that we that next normal is actually possible. You know, Monique, I, I think the one lesson I get from my ancestors when I watch these movies, um, just historical legacy movies, I was watching Bessie the other day, Harriet Tubman. When, when you watch these stories, there was this one thing about people, um, those, those, I'll say those women. There was one thing about them that I think everybody else looked at the actions they were doing I looked at the level of confidence and there's this level of confidence you have to have. And I think people who have been directly impacted or proximate to this problem have, we embody this. It's this boldness to think outside the box of what we could have never imagined. And we can stand in that boldness because we're lying on the fact of what can you do to me? You already put me in a cage. You already took me away from my children. The level of pain that I've already felt, you can't do any more harm to me. So do I shortchange myself by folding, harping on 
the past or being fearful? Or do I stand in my greatness and my boldness and demand better? Demand to be respected and treated better. I, I, I mean, even in this work, um, having that boldness. I, when I say oppression, just because we're in leadership roles or we're pushing agendas, we're rubbing elbows. As a Black woman running a national organization, I'm oppressed by philanthropy. There are some philanthropists who struggle with my voice, and I know they struggle. But because Black organizations never received the funding, I think there was a report that said Black organizations get 0.1% of philanthropy dollars when they're ran by an African-American person. So do I stand in my integrity? which will be seen is uncomfortable at the time to cater to you just for a check to do this work. I then feel like I'm in a battle if I do that. So standing in your work, having the impact, standing in integrity, that's the one thing I get from my ancestors. And that's what I want to leave for my children and my grandchildren, that no matter the battle, no matter the struggle, your authentic truth, your integrity must stand, right? The demand for people to respect and treat you different has to be communicated. You don't get to treat me as you think I should be treated. You get to treat me how I demand to be treated, right? Um, And people aren't used to that in philanthropy. They're used to organizations begging for money. Oh, I might give you this. I've walked away from millions at the table because you don't get to talk to me like that or treat me or tell me what to do. Did my organization need the funding? Yes, it did. But what I was not willing to do was to compromise my integrity. And I have this saying to my team all the time. The day I become a barrier to this organization raising funds to have the impact locally is the day I will walk away. Because what I'm not going to do is hinder this organization from the great work it's doing. But I ain't giving up my voice and submitting to no one. My grandmother did that in 1911, right? Because she didn't have a choice. Um, I've been, I found my voice. I found my confidence and I found my boldness. And it's not in disrespect to anyone. It's in relation to what's right. And as a human, we deserve to be treated humans. And this gets real personal to me in this moment because I have two black male children who I worry about every time the sun goes down. Every time there's a shooting, my sons know to text me and let me know they're okay. And I think I'm not the only black mother in the city who feels that when there's a shooting being done, right? So what I realize is even the oppression I'm watching through my children, the trauma that my children have experienced and the lack of resources that are culturally relevant to treat them. Man, if we don't fight for them, we got to fight someone. I'm fighting for your son right now. Because I don't ever want his feet to touch a prison system. I don't want in his school system for them to set him up for a school-to-prison pipeline in the way they treat him. We got to disrupt this somewhere. And it's, and if not us, then who? If not us, then who? You know, um, I always say my children may not know it. They watch me, um, especially my oldest who went through my active addiction. They're proud. But This is going to come out in them because we are their role models. And this is where they're going to find their greatness from, of not being willing to be oppressed. They're going to find their strength. And 
if we don't set out to do this and show them examples, this is how we learn. Um, yeah, I just, I don't know. I just, I have to stand in my truth and I have to empower generations behind me. I am hoping that black young ladies are watching. That's why I love visiting HBCUs. I need women to grab their voice. Women are the backbone of this country. Every movement in this country, the backbone was women. Martin Luther King said the speeches, but it was the women on the back line that was actually making it happen. We never got the fame and fortune. I don't need the fame and fortune. We just need to see it happen because we know our babies, other people's babies, generations to come are going to be trapped in this system if we don't blow it up and dismantle it. That gives me chills. I, I, as a mother of a Black son myself, I hear you. Deanna, it's been my absolute pleasure and honor to speak with you today. And we wish you and your team every success in this work and stand with you as you fight for justice and against dehumanization. Thank you, Monique. It was an honor to be here. Thank you to your audience. The Reconstruction is a project of Impact Alpha. The steering committee includes Erica Seth Davies and Carrie Hansen, with thanks to Dr. Julian Marcel. We benefited from the wisdom of our brain trust of more than a dozen leaders in the field. To send us your favorite quote or ideas for future guests who you think represent the principles of the Reconstruction, email us at tr at impactalpha.com. Impact Alpha's editor is David Bank, and our producer is Isaac Silk. Special thanks to Lainika Little and Cesar Chavez. You can see Impact Alpha's reconstruction coverage at impactalpha.com slash the dash reconstruction and sign up for our mailing list to learn when new episodes are released. The Reconstruction Podcast is free of charge, but it's powered by Impact Alpha subscribers. Join us, impactalpha.com slash subscribe. Our closing quote today comes from Deanna, our guest. We are no longer asking for a seat at the table. We are the table.